Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. This is the third sermon in our series through this short book of Habakkuk. And to bring everybody up to speed on where we're at, let's, let me do a quick review. Uh, after the period of the judges, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon each ruled in, in Israel for 40 years, 40 years each. And so the, the collective 120-year reign of these three kings is what was called the time of the United Kingdom. It's a united, united kingdom because all 12 tribes of Israel were united in one kingdom under one king. But when the throne passed from Solomon to his son Rehoboam in 930 BC, there were tensions within the kingdom and Rehoboam did not handle those tensions very well. So the kingdom split. It split into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin made up the southern kingdom and remained under the rule of Rehoboam, whereas the other 10 tribes made up the northern kingdom, and they had a different king, uh, a man named Jeroboam. And during the time of the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom had 20 kings. And what's notable is that all 20 of them were bad kings, uh, which is to say not a single one of them honored God Not a single one of them ruled his people according to the law of God. And so after 208 years of sending prophets to the northern kingdom, prophets who were telling the people of their sins and warning them about the judgment God will bring on them if they refuse to repent, the Lord made good on his threat. In 722 BC, he brought judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. He used the Assyrian army to invade and conquer Israel. And the Assyrians exiled the Israelites from out of their homeland and dispersed them all throughout the Assyrian empire. And those 10 tribes of Israel were assimilated into the the Assyrian culture. They intermarried with foreigners and they ceased to maintain their identity as a covenant people God had separated from the world. The southern kingdom of Judah also had 20 kings, but not every one of them were bad. There were a few good ones who honored God and ruled, ruled according to his law, but the majority of the kings, even in the southern kingdom, were, were bad. So after 344 years of sending prophets to the southern kingdom, telling them of their sin and warning them about the judgment that God will bring if they refuse to repent, the Lord made good on his threat. He brought judgment upon the southern kingdom just as he did the northern kingdom. In 605 BC, God used the Babylonian army to begin invading and conquering the southern kingdom of Judah. And just, at, just like the Assyrians um, did with the people of Israel, the Babylonians exiled the Jews from out of their homeland and brought them into Babylon. But unlike the northern kingdom, God preserved a remnant from Judah. 
After 70 years of captivity in Babylon, the Lord brought a remnant of faithful Jews back to Jerusalem. The remnant began to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, and reestablish life, a life of worship and a life of service to God as his covenant people who have been separated from the world. The book of Habakkuk was written right about 605 B.C., just before the Babylonian army began to take the southern kingdom captive. This is a very important point for us to keep in mind as we read Habakkuk, because Habakkuk didn't know that the Babylonians were going to invade Judah. At least, he didn't know in the beginning of the book of Habakkuk. We know that uh, Judah is going to be captured and exiled to Babylon because we live 2,600 years after all of this has happened. We have the complete canon of Scripture to guide us in our knowledge and understanding of what happened back then. But Habakkuk didn't have that privilege. This is what Habakkuk, uh, th- this is what Habakkuk's understanding of things looked like at the beginning of chapter one. The southern kingdom was in a deep a state of deep spiritual and moral decay. So Habakkuk came to the Lord in verses two and two through four in chapter one, and he says, How long, O Lord? How long will you permit Judah to continue in her sinful rebellion? How long will you withhold your fatherly discipline uh, and correction from your people? God answered Habakkuk, and his answer startled Habakkuk. He said that God said that he was raising up the brutal and wicked Babylonians to take Judah captive. And this startled Habakkuk because he was well aware of what had happened to the northern kingdom when the Lord brought them into captivity. And now the Lord is saying that he's going to bring the southern kingdom into captivity. And Habakkuk is wondering, what does this mean for the future of Judah? We saw in last Sunday's sermon how Habakkuk was trying to reconcile the character and nature of God with the tragedy that the Lord was just uh, was foretelling. And Habakkuk was trying to reconcile what seemed like the end of God's covenant people with the promise God made to establish David's seed upon the throne forever. So in verses 12 through 17 of chapter one, Habakkuk approached God with some more questions. He sought clarification on why the Lord would use such severe measures with his, with his covenant people. Will the Babylonians wipe out Judah? Habakkuk sought clarification on how the Lord could hold his tongue while the wicked Babylonians devour those who are more righteous than them. And Habakkuk sought the Lord's clarification on whether the Babylonians would ever be brought to justice. After they conquered Judah, is the Lord just gonna allow them to keep conquering nation after nation after nation? Habakkuk had some questions. So he approached the Lord with his questions. And after he had asked his questions, he said in verse one of chapter two, that he's going to take his stand as a watchman on the watchtower, actively, not passively, but actively watching to see how the Lord will answer him. And Habakkuk was confident that when the Lord did answer him, the Lord will bring correction to Habakkuk's 
understanding and way of thinking. The Lord would give him a better understanding of the situation that, that is impending upon Judah. And so Habakkuk waited for the Lord's response. And this brings us to our sermon text. Our sermon text is God's response to Habakkuk's second set of questions. And what I want you to notice is that the Lord's uh, response gives hope to Habakkuk. It gives him hope. It gives hope for two, uh, at two levels. First, God lets Habakkuk know that he's not going to completely destroy his covenant people. Right? That this is what Habakkuk was thinking may happen. Very similar to the Assyrian. But what God does is he brings hope. He lets Habakkuk know that he's not going to destroy his covenant people. And second, uh, God tells Habakkuk in no uncertain terms that he's going to bring judgment upon, upon the Babylonians. He says that the wickedness of the Babylonians will be their own undoing. While the Lord will use the, the wickedness of the Babylonians to bring about the good and necessary correction to his covenant people, God is still going to hold the Babylonians responsible for their wickedness. They're not going to get away with it. God assures Habakkuk that his justice will prevail over the Babylonians. So let's take a closer look at these two aspects of the Lord's response to Habakkuk. Notice that when the Lord begins responding to Habakkuk, he begins by giving instruction. God begins by giving instruction. He tells Habakkuk to make a record of what's being revealed to him. Look at verse two. Write the vision and make it plain on tablets. Now, why is the Lord telling Habakkuk to write the vision and to make it plain on tablets? What purpose does this serve? That he may run who reads it. That he may run who reads it. And then in verse 3, the Lord adds a time marker. He, he doesn't say exactly when the people who read the vision will be made to run, but he lets Habakkuk know that it's not in the not too distant future. Uh, it's not too far in the future. For the vision, verse three, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Now realize as uh, at the time that God is speaking to Habakkuk, Habakkuk was the only person who knew that the Babylonians were about to invade Judah. Everybody else in Judah was eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day the Babylonians arrived. The Lord knew that his people were going to be taken by surprise, and he knew that their lives were going to be turned upside down, and when they were turned upside down, they were going to be asking all the same questions, all the same type of questions that Habakkuk was asking in chapter 1. So before any of this happened... The Lord told Habakkuk to write the vision on tablets so that when the time comes that the people are searching for these answers, they can read the vision and be made to run with endurance. We learn from this, brothers and sisters, that our Lord knows the hardships and trials that we're going to experience before we ever experience them. And because our Lord is compassionate, he providentially supplies the resources we need for running the race with endurance. 
Either he supplies the needed resources in the moment, like he did when he commissioned ravens to bring bread and meat to Elijah every morning and evening, or he supplies the needed resources ahead of time so that those resources are waiting there for us. As in, that's what we see him doing here with Judah in our sermon text. Because our Lord is compassionate, he providentially supplies the resources his people need to run the race with endurance. And it's not just the Lord's compassion that moves him to supply for his people's needs. It's also an act of his grace. Realize, Habakkuk wasn't the first prophet God sent to Judah. He sent other prophets, prophets who warned the people, explaining to them that they could avoid the chastisement of God if they would just humble themselves in repentance and submit to the Lord's commands. But the people were obstinate. They would not listen. They rejected God's prophets. And so now the Lord is going to make them experience his chastisement. But even in the face of Judah's stubborn, obstinate rebellion, God is still showing his compassion to them. He knows that if Habakkuk were to speak the truth to them right now in that situation, they would just reject Habakkuk like they've rejected every other prophet. So God instructs Habakkuk, write, write the vision on tablets so that when their hearts are ready to receive it, they'll be able to read the vision that I'm giving to you right now and they will then be able to made, made to run with endurance. Brothers and sisters, the Lord does the same thing for you and me. Even in situations where we bring God's chastisement upon ourselves, when we resist God, when we ignore his commandments, when we're reluctant to repent, when we're unwilling to listen to his truth, even in situations where we bring God's chastisement upon ourselves, he is gracious to us. He, he still has compassion on us. He still provides the resources we need to run the race with endurance. And he providentially supplies those resources at the very time you and I need them. Are you aware of this grace, dear friends? Have you experienced this grace? Are you able to recognize the ways God has equipped you to run through the challenges and hardships of your life? Are you able to see the Lord's timing in bringing you his resources when you most need them? As has already been noted, when Judah is taken captive by the Babylonians, there's going to be, they are going to experience a lot of violence and wickedness. Uh, they're going to be forcibly driven from their homes. Uh, they're going to be impacted uh, in many ways, one of which is they, they, there's going to be a significant impact on their ability to worship God. Uh, not only are the Jews going to be at a great distance from the holy temple in Jerusalem, but the city and the temple are going to be destroyed. Now, you might be thinking, well, yeah, I'm not so sure the destruction of the temple is such a big deal to the people of Judah because they were in a state of serious spiritual decay in 605 BC. Their hearts were not in the right place. 
they had been neglecting the true worship of God. So I don't think it's uh, really uh, that big of a deal. I don't think it was really that um, uh, significant to the Jews that the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Well, that's actually true. But don't forget how tragedy has a way of turning God's people back to him. Don't forget how pain and suffering have a way of making us seek the mercies of God in ways that we would not have done if times were better. When the Babylonians began deporting the Jews into Babylon, that was a wake-up call to the Jews. Uh, It got their attention. They suddenly found themselves in a foreign land. And as each additional deportation arrived in Babylon, they would tell the news of what was happening back in Judah. In 587 BC, a deportation arrived in Babylon with the news that the temple had been destroyed. And this was devastating to any Jew who had any semblance of faith in God. Why? Because the temple was the place where God met with his people. It was where worship occurred. It was where the penitent would bring their sacrifices and the priest would offer them up as a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. The Jews in Babylon, therefore, would have been saying to themselves, oh, the Lord is dealing with, uh, with us according to our sins. The fact that we're in this foreign land is tangible evidence that we're under the divine judgment for breaking the conditions of the covenant that God made with us. Yet, where can we go to be reconciled with God? We can't go to Jerusalem. There's no temple for us to bring sacrifices to. There's no hope for us. We're stuck. We're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Psalm 137 is one of the newest psalms in the Psalter. And what I mean by newest is that it's one of the last psalms to be written. Whereas most of the psalms are written, you know, during the time of David, either by David or his contemporaries, uh, Psalm 137 was written during the Babylonian captivity. It begins with a lament. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. So Psalm 137 is describing how the exiled Jews were sitting in Babylon weeping because of their separation from Jerusalem. And because we understand what Jerusalem meant to these exiled Jews, we understand that they were lamenting their perceived separation from God. The psalm goes on to describe how those who carried us away captive asked us Uh, asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And how did the Jews, how did the Jews respond when the Babylonians asked them to sing them one of the joyful songs of Zion? They said to themselves, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And this is a rhetorical question. The Jews were saying to themselves, we cannot sing the Lord's song because we have been separated from the place where we're able to meet the Lord. Not only are we 600 miles away from the holy city, 
but the city has been destroyed and the holy temple has been destroyed. So there's no way of approaching God. And we have no way of offering sacrifices to God, which means we have no way of being reconciled to God. We're stuck in this foreign land, separated from God. There is no hope from us. No, we cannot sing the Lord's song. It's at this time when the Jews had reached this state of brokenness and desperation, having come to the sobering realization that there's nothing they can do by their own strength to possess the joy and laughter of the Lord's song in their hearts, that God appointed for the vision written by Habakkuk to make them run in hope and perseverance. They're now ready to hear what the prophet has to say. And what does the vision say? What is it about the vision that will give hope to the broken and downtrodden people of God? Look at verse four of our sermon text. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Notice the contrast that the Lord is making in this verse. He's contrasting the Babylonians with Judah, and he says that the Babylonians are proud. Now consider for a moment, what's the opposite of proud? It's humility, right? But that's not how God describes Judah in verse four. He describes Judah as just. Now verse four uh, is a parallelism. A parallelism is a common literary feature in Hebrew literature, and one of, the, one of its strengths, it has many strengths, but one of its strengths is the ability to convey a lot of rich information with just a few words. In verse four, we have a contrasting parallelism, which means the key terms are showing a contrast between the Babylonians and Judah. But the brilliance of this literary device is that the contrasting terms, uh, the, the, the contrasting term is not stated but implied. It's the responsibility of the reader to supply the appropriate contrasting term. So when God says that the Babylonians are proud, he's implying that Judah is humble. And when God says that Judah is just, he's implying that the Babylonians are unjust. And when God says that the the Babylonian's soul is not upright in him, he's implying that Judah's soul is upright in him. And when God says that Judah shall live by faith, what is he implying about the Babylonians? That they will die by faith? That they will live by a lack of faith? What contrast, what is the contrast to living by faith? The Lord uses the remainder of chapter two to supply his answer to this question. And the short answer is that the Babylonians will perish in their sin. The long answer begins in verse five and ends in verse 20. It's the same answer, just a short version and a long version. The short version, the Babylonians are gonna perish in their sins. The long answer takes from verse five to verse 20. And we'll take a look at the long answer in just a minute. But let me first call your attention to how this vision served as an encouragement to the Jews who were exiled in Babylon. When the exiled Jews 
read the vision that Habakkuk recorded on a tablet, they would see, uh, they would have seen this contrast that we, we have right here. They would have seen the contrast that God is making between the Babylonians and Judah. And they would have been extremely encouraged to learn that God is still favorable to them. And likewise, they would have been extremely encouraged to learn that God is opposed to the Babylonians. So the Jews who read and believed the vision recorded by Habakkuk, their belief would have been accounted to them as righteousness. Just as Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed in the Lord and God accounted it to him for righteousness, so it was for the Jews in Babylon who believed the Lord. They didn't have a full comprehension of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. They were still under the tutor that was bringing them to Christ. They were still under the ceremonial law that was showing them Christ Jesus in in types and shadows. So they didn't have the fullness of revelation that's contained in the New Testament. Nevertheless, the gospel of Jesus Christ had been preached to them through types and shadows. And the gospel of Jesus Christ had been preached to them in the vision Habakkuk recorded on the clay tablets. So for everyone who believed the gospel that had been preached to them, God accounted it to them as righteousness. And so as it says in verse three of our sermon text, at the time appointed by God, this vision spoke to the people of God and made them run. It made them run. It gave the exiles hope. It gave them courage. It gave them endurance. But most of all, it gave them life. Brothers and sisters, you and I live in the appointed time of Habakkuk's vision. You and I are living in a time when reading and believing the vision will make us run with endurance. Let me illustrate this point by turning your attention to the New Testament letter written to the Hebrews. The Hebrews uh, were first century Jewish Christians living under the new covenant. Um, They were no longer under the tutor of ceremonial law. They were living in these last days when God had spoken to us by his son, as it says in Hebrews 1-2. They had a clear revelation that Jesus purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, as it says in Hebrews 1-3. Yet these Jewish Christians were contemplating going back to Judaism. The persecution against him had been so intense for so long that they thought it would be a lot easier if they just walked away from the faith. So this letter to the Hebrews was written in order to persuade them not to give up. In the 10th chapter, the author of this letter was reminding them how they had already endured a lot of persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, He reminds them how they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods, the confiscation of their homes, being reproached and mistreated. He reminds them that they were able to endure those persecutions in the past because they knew that they had a better and enduring possession for themselves in heaven. But now... These Jewish Christians are growing weary. The author of the letter calls their attention to this in, uh, in 1036, saying, 
For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Now, what promise is he referring to? It's the promise written in Habakkuk 2.2 that whoever believes in the vision Habakkuk recorded will be made to run with endurance. The writer to the Hebrews then goes on to quote in the next verse, Hebrews 2.4, reminding his readers that the just shall live by faith. And then he illustrates this very point all throughout chapter 11 by giving some examples of saints who have successfully persevered through their trials by faith. And then in chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12, the writer returns back to the point that he was making at the end of chapter 10 regarding Habakkuk's prophecy. And he applies the promise that's contained, contained in Habakkuk's vision. He applies it to these Jewish Christians in the first century. He writes in verses one and two, therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Brothers and sisters, the promise in Habakkuk's vision was not just for the exiled Jews in Babylon. It was also for the Hebrew Christians living in the first century. And it's not just for the Hebrew Christians living in the first century. It's for you and me living in the 21st century as well. That's exceedingly good news because we grow weary in our Christian walk as well. You might be experiencing your own version of weeping by the rivers of Babylon. You might be telling yourself that you cannot sing the Lord's song because of all the grief and sorrow that's presently in your heart. Or you might be experiencing your own version of persecution because of your faith in Jesus Christ. You may not have had your house confiscated from you, but you may have had other things taken away from you. You may have been skipped over for a promotion opportunity at work. Or you may have been rejected for a certain academic program. Or you may have family members that have turned against you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Dear Christian, if you are losing hope because you're growing weary of taking up the cross and following Jesus, then you have need for endurance. You need to be encouraged by the promise that has been written for you by Habakkuk. You need to be reminded that the just shall live by faith because this promise will make you run with endurance the race that is set before you. How so? by pointing you to Jesus, who is not only the author of your faith, but he is also the finisher of your faith. Or to put it in the words of Philippians 1 verse 6, we are confident of this very thing, that he who be has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Because we live in the time appointed for Habakkuk's vision, we can personalize this contrast that God is making in, in Habakkuk 2.4. This is not just a contrast between Judah and Babylon. This is a contrast between the enemies of God and the children of God. The enemies of God are proud, unjust, their soul is not right in them, and they will perish in their sins. But you, dear Christian, 
have been saved by God's grace. You've been humbled by God's grace. You've been justified by God's grace. Your soul has been made upright by God's grace. And you have been given the gift of faith by which you have eternal life. What makes this present life difficult for us to live in is because we live between the already and the not yet. You already possess eternal life. You already possess Jesus Christ and all his benefits. And Jesus has already ascended to his throne from where he rules on high as the King of kings and Lord of lords. But we do not yet see all things in subjection to him. And we do not yet see all his enemies made his footstool. So we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We eagerly wait for all things to be made right at the return of Jesus. But until that time, we need perseverance. We need endurance. So we need to remind ourselves and we need to remind one another that the just shall live by faith. That's the promise of Habakkuk's vision. The just shall live by faith. And that's what makes us run. And we take courage in the knowledge that the enemies of God are not getting away with their wickedness. While it might appear for a brief window of time that the wicked are succeeding, Habakkuk's vision informs us that, they're not, that, 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 that they are going to perish in their sins. Um, it's in, in the long answer that I referenced a few minutes ago, God pronounces five woes upon the Babylonians. But remember, it isn't just about the Babylonians. The Babylonians happen to be the original recipient of these woes. But what we're reading in our sermon text applies to every enemy of God in every age from the time of the Babylonians to until the, to, the time of Christ's return. What I want you to see, we're going to quickly go through these woes, and what I want you to see is that each of these five woes, um, within them, the Lord uh, frustrates his, the, the, the plans of his enemies. The Lord frustrates his enemies' plans. And with each woe, there is also a punishment that the Lord brings upon the wicked. The first woe begins in verse 6 of our sermon text, and it centers on the Babylonians' greed. It tells how they multiply their wealth through theft, injustice, and violence. But in an unexpected reversal, God says in verse 7 that the victims of their schemes will rise up and turn the tables on the Babylonians. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you, God says in verse 8. And this reminds us of the truth in Ezekiel 18, verses 12 and 13. If he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, if he has exacted usury and taken, or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. That's the Lord's declaration. The second will begins in verse 9 and tells how the Babylonians are attempting to establish a dynasty but because of their commitment to unrighteousness, they give evil and shameful counsel to the members of their own house, or we can read that, the members of their own government. And this leads to internal strife and conflict within their, their organization, and the dynasty soon crumbles from within. The third woe begins in verse 12 and is similar to the second. It describes how the Babylonians build cities and towns with bloodshed and iniquity, yet the Lord assures 
that their toil is in vain and their cities will soon go up in smoke. And this reminds us of Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The fourth woe begins in verse 14 and tells how the Babylonians gain pleasure by shaming and humiliating other people. God informs them that they're going to be shamed and they're going to be disgraced when he forces them to drink from the cup of his wrath. And this reminds us of Psalm 35, verse 26. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. And the fifth and final woe begins in verse 18. It depicts the Babylonians' devotion to idols and how they seek guidance from dead wood and mute stones that are overlaid with gold and silver. And this reminds us of Deuteronomy 32, 17 and Leviticus 17, 7, both of which tell us that the guidance the wicked think they are receiving from their idols is really, the, is, is really instruction from demons. It's not the idol speaking, it's demon speaking. So just as the Lord did with wicked King Ahab, he causes his enemies to be led into chaos and confusion by demonic spirits who teach lies. Now, some of you might be thinking that this long answer that God is giving in verses five through 20 is some pretty heavy stuff. And it is, to be sure. It's describing how the Lord frustrates his enemies' plans and ultimately visits his wrath upon them. But don't miss the point in all of this. This is in response to Habakkuk's question about why the Lord lets the wicked succeed. And what God is saying in his response is, I'm not letting the wicked succeed. They will bear the punishment for their sins when I'm done using them for my righteous purposes. Habakkuk was not the first person, the only person to wonder why the wicked succeed. And Habakkuk was not the only person who wondered why the Lord seems to take so long in bringing justice upon his enemies. In every generation of God's people, these questions have been asked. And in every generation of God's people, the, the promise uh, in Habakkuk's vision remains true. The wicked shall perish in their sins, but the just shall live by faith. Look at how our sermon text ends. Look what it says in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. When it says let all the earth keep silence before him, it's not saying that his children cannot ask the type of questions that Habakkuk asked in chapter one. No, the Lord invites us to ask those questions. He wants us to come to him when we're tired and weary and concerned and confused. When the prophets of God say, let all the earth keep silence before him, this is an indication that the Lord is about to bring judgment upon his enemies. We see this, for example, in Zephaniah and Zechariah. The same words are used uh, in preparation for God's judgment. So the point of emphasis at the end of God's response to Habakkuk is for us to be patient. We live between the already and the not yet. God will take care of his enemies according to the time that he has appointed. 
His justice will, will, will not be hindered. So we don't need to concern ourselves with that. And in contrast to what the Lord is going to do to his enemies, he has given eternal life to his children. If you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you already possess this eternal life, it's yours and nobody can take it away. So lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares you and run with endurance the race that is set before you, looking unto Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of your faith. Amen. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.